I'm always a lot more nervous speaking in English to a uh, American audience because you have expectations that the Kalanguya don't have. You have an expectation that you're going to get home in time for lunch. <laughs> but I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you this morning, especially now that uh, we have merged two churches together. Uh, there are some who uh, really don't, aren't that familiar with Judy and me and our ministry in the Philippines. Before we start, let's have just a word of prayer and ask God to calm my heart in uh, ministering to you this morning and uh, give you receptive hearts for God's word. Heavenly Father, once again, we just recognize our dependence upon you to uh, direct our thinking in, in, uh, in teaching your word. We thank you for your word and, and how it becomes fresh every morning and how it becomes new to us as we read it and we gain new insights from it. And Lord, we just thank you for the work that you have done among the Kalanguya people and in, in changing their worldview and, and, and just bringing them to a place where they have taken the responsibility to reach their own people. And Lord, we just thank you for this church and their willingness to be involved in that ministry and be involved in the ministry all over the world. And Lord, we just pray that you would be... Uh, Direct us in our thinking this morning. Give me the words to speak and give us the hearts to receive the things from your word and, and be encouraged by them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, oh, this is not on. Okay. Okay, this is what you would see in the typical home. Uh, when we first made contact with the Kalanguya people, of husband, wife, children, and grandparents, they're working around the, the house in their little home, fire burning inside the house. And that's uh, pretty much the uh, situation of most of the tribal people that you would find in, in 1967 when we first made contact with the people there. But by way of introduction, I want to talk a bit about the Kalanguya tribal situation before they heard the gospel so that you can see how the worldview drastically changed because of their understanding of the gospel of grace and why it is now so important for them to have the entire Bible uh, translated and printed in their language. Fifty years ago, Judy and I with our two small children, moved into a tribal village in the mountains of the northern Philippines where we could be immersed in the Kalanguya culture and learn to speak the language of the Kalanguya people, a language that had never been put into writing form, written form. The Kalanguya tribe would, was estimated to be about 40,000 people at that time and now probably more like 50 to 60,000 people. But these are people who were controlled by the belief of the spirit world. They feared their ancestral spirits because they believed that when a person dies, he goes on to the place of the dead. And in that place, he has needs, just, as he, just like he does here on earth. And the only way that he can make those needs known to the living relatives is by making them sick or through dreams. And so they're very... Uh, fearful of the things that they dream 
because they do they actually believe that the spirit leaves the body during a dream and is ex actually experiencing all the things that go on in that dream and if they if they have a dream about an ancestral spirit if they have a dream about the the bones of an ancestor that needs to be dug up because there's water in the grave they will do it and amazingly enough there's water in the grave and so the, the spirits and Satan does enough uh, significant things that keep them in bondage to the belief system in the spirit world they believe that all sickness comes from the spirit world. So here, Judy and I started doing medical work. We didn't find too many people interested in the medical work. In fact, uh, when they would do all their sacrifices, they would say, okay, this person's going to die anyway. Let's bring him over to Bob's house. And a lot of people would die right at our, right at our home. But uh, people around us that... Uh, had more and more confidence in us and, and we were able to build trust in, in the things that we were doing and why we were there, they would bring people and, and we had some real significant cures just by simply uh, simple uh, penicillin injections. And so that they came to realize that there's some, something here that uh, they could maybe tie into. In fact, the witch doctor said to me, boy, it's great uh, that you come here. The sacrifices help the the medicine and the medicine helps the sacrifice and I'm thinking gee I must be doing something wrong because I always heard that the, the witch doctor is going to be my enemy but see they were looking at me well if I can give them if I can give them medicine and it takes away sickness what did I deal with did I deal with an, a biological issue? No, I dealt with the spirit world because they believe that all sickness comes from the spirit world. Here's a people that had no biblical concept of God or sin, people among whom God wanted to build his church. But it seemed so impossible Why would they believe me? I have a book. I said, this is God's word, but they couldn't read it. They didn't even have a written language. I had to communicate to them concepts that they never communicated to each other. They had, there was a people who had a reciprocal relationship with the spirit world. They believed that if they offered the right sacrifices, they could manipulate the spirits to do their bidding. And so whenever someone would get sick, they would call on the witch doctor. And the witch doctor would come and, and he would div uh, use divination to determine what the, the, the sickness was, what the, what the spirit was requesting, and then the people would have to do that. And if they didn't do it, they believed that the, the, the ancestor would make someone else sick or take their life. So they were very fearful of the things that the witch doctor uh, caused them to do. They believed that if they offered the right sacrifices, they could manipulate the spirits to do their bidding. 
Here's a people with a religious mindset, always thinking what they could do to gain favor with whatever they considered had power over life and nature. After about two years of language study, I started teaching about God and man's sinful condition in God's sight. But they didn't know what that had anything to do with what they were really concerned about. Even though I told them that God was going to punish them for their sin. One man said to me, why would God punish us for a sin? He said, if I steal my neighbor's pig, I didn't steal God's pig. I realized that they had no understanding of their accountability to God as a creator. They were only concerned about meeting their felt needs like food, clothing, shelter, health, becoming more prosperous, just like people here in America with a religious mindset. Initially, as I was interacting with small groups of people in their homes to get more information about the language and their culture, I realized how much they loved stories. Stories are part of the Kalanguya culture. It was their way to, for, for one generation to pass on their knowledge of their history, their beliefs, their values to the next generation. Their cosmology. I wanted to learn about their cosmology. And, uh, and the mythology that was developed because they are not exposed. They were not exposed to any scientific information. So you all know the earth is flat, right? Held up by four posts. And there's a spirit being under the earth that, that guards the posts. And sometimes when there's a tremor, earth tremor, it's because his, his, one of his pigs or a carabao were rubbing against one of the posts. Or when there's a big earthquake, it's because he's had to change one of the posts. And that's a terrifying time for them because if they don't, he, he doesn't get it right, they're in trouble. And so these are the kinds of things that we're dealing with in their, in their worldview. So they asked me one time, he says, well, okay, okay, what do you believe about uh, the world and the universe and, and, and everything? And I said, well, I got, went in the house and I got a volleyball and I got a basketball, I got a tennis ball, and I put the basketball there and I revolved the volleyball around the basketball and I said, this is the earth, and the earth is spinning as it goes around. And then the, the, the tennis ball was the moon, and that goes around. And each time the earth goes around one time, that's one day. That's why it's dark, and that's why it's light. And I said, their thinking was that the earth is stationary. It's the sun that moves. So for them to hear that the earth is is rotating on its axis and that there's a, 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 a moon rotating around the earth and then there's the earth rotating around the sun. I, I said to one of the fellows when I got done telling them this story, they were frowning a little bit and I said, did they believe what I said? And the fellow said, no. He said, one old man said, as he was grumbling as he was walking away, he says, if everything was spinning like this, he said it was, we'd go home and never know the where the door to our house was.
Then I started thinking, I want to learn their folk stories. Because you know our folk stories and the stories we teach our kids uh, reflect our values. Take this, just example, the three little pigs. Can you think of a value that was, is reflected in that story? Well, if you're going to do something, you do it good. You don't just throw up a house with sticks or a house with straw. Like, of course, that's what they do. <laughs> but the value is, you, if you're going to do something, do it right, do it strong, build it to last. Okay, that's our value. And I realize that they must have stories too that reflect their values. So I told them the story of the uh, tortoise and the hare and how that the tortoise, because he pursued and he continued on and the hare just uh, considered his ability so great that he could just rest and fall asleep and the hare uh, ended up winning the race. Uh, They said, oh, we have a story like that. It's a snail and a deer. Well, what, what values did, did that portray to us in the tortoise and the hare? That even though you don't have the greatest ability, if you continue on, you pursue, you'll succeed. And we don't necessarily stop and tell uh, the kids what the, what the story's all about or what the values are in the story. But when we... Uh, when, when I, I said, oh, yeah, tell me that story about the, the snails and the deer. Well, they said the snail was down by the river and the deer would come down for a drink and the deer was always criticizing the snail and always making fun of him because he never saw the rest of the world and he just told him about how he could run through the forest and everything. And, the, and so the snail, to make a long story short, said, let's just have a race. We'll see who can win in the race. He said, but... You come back in a week, and what we're going to do, we're going to race up the river. And every time, and then when you come back, we'll uh, start the race. So he said, so the snail said to the deer, whenever we're going to take off, and when I say go, you just take off, and every time you stop, you say, where are you? And I'll answer you. So the, the, the deer takes off, and he does that. And he takes off again, and he does that. And every time he asks, says, where are you? The snail answers. Takes off again. He stops, he says, where are you? The snail answers. He stops and takes off, and the snail answers. I could go on for a while, but what happened? The end of the story is that deer dropped dead. That's the end of the story. And I'm supposed to know what happened. How did the snail do that? Attached to the deer, right? You know why you came up with that answer? Because you had the context of the tortoise and the hare, where you had two individual efforts. And they were pitting against each other. Here, the reason that the snail did it, he, he communicated with his clan all the way up the river. Because the people value community rather than an individual effort. So as I began teaching the stories, telling stories from the Old Testament, 
not just stories for story's sake, but stories as part of a meta-narrative of God's plan of redemption fulfilled in the New Testament. Stories about the conflict that took place between God and Satan. Can you imagine how I was able to use that story of the snail and the deer and their value for community to communicate in relation to God's conflict, but the conflict between God and Satan? It's not just two individual efforts. But God created a community to live in harmony, which they valued tremendously. And so by putting, putting that spin to it, it communicated because it, it, it more easily or greatly vindicated God in his action against Satan, who decided that he didn't want to just worship God, he wanted to be worshipped too. He knew that God was the Trinity, but he wanted to make it a quartet. And so he drew off a portion of the angels, destroying the community, destroying the harmony that God created. And so that communicated much better to them. Stories of creation, establishing God as the owner and how God had created man in God's image. To have fellowship with God and obedience and, and to God's commands and warnings. Establishing man's accountability to the creator God. Stories concerning the effects of man's rebellion on all of creation. Stories about how God interacted with people who desired to have fellowship with God like Noah and Abraham. Stories relating to God's conditional covenant relationship with the nation of Israel based on the law given to Moses, written on tablets of stone. Stories about the sacrificial system that God provided when men could not fulfill the conditions of the covenant, allowing for the sacrificial lamb to be offered as a substitute and the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. And you recognize the fact that it's called a mercy seat, not a grace seat. Because there's a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy withholds that which we deserve. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. Stories about the prophets and how they were directed by the Holy Spirit to prophesy things hundreds of years before the coming of Christ who were fulfilled when Christ came. It's all stories to answer the question of why the death of Christ was necessary for man to have right standing before a holy and just God. Now let's fast forward to where I was recently teaching a group of believers in the Mapayao Church. I wish you could see this a little bit better, bigger. Can you see the cell phones? Can you count the cell phones there? There's one. Uh, there's another one. There's another one. They're either taking pictures or recording everything I say. Now that's scary. Because I'm speaking in a foreign language and I don't want to say Masapulne Agbabai. This communion in Kalangia land where Vicente is reading from his, from a, an, the Kalangia New Testament app on his cell phone. Now I'd like us to consider the main thoughts 
of a message that I've been preparing to teach to the Kalanguya when we return to the Philippines in next year, particularly in the light of them having the Old Testament and the New Testament in their language. And so we're going to uh, read from Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse six to nine, and this is going to. This was the title of the message that uh, God's glory as revealed in two contrasting covenants. Starting with verse 6, relating to a story from the Old Testament, Paul uses as an illustration to contrast what he call, to what he calls the new covenant. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Now, without the background of the Old Testament and the character of God and the covenant that God made with Israel, it would be very difficult for the Kalanguya church leaders to teach a passage like this. But they do have also without, uh, and it would even be difficult for us to get, wrap our minds around all the implications in this chapter without commentary input. Well, we do have commentaries on First and Second Corinthians, Romans, Hebrews, Galatians, Ephesians, which all need to be revised now that we have um, a revised New Testament and a uh, in the Old Testament. In verse seven, oops. In verse 7, uh, it's a ministry engraved in letters of stone referring to the covenant made at, on Mount Sinai, the, 12, the uh, 12, 10 commandments. In verse 9, it's a ministry that condemns men. Why does it condemn men? Because... The commands were demands that could not be met with internal ability. The new covenant referred to in verses 8 and 9 is the ministry of the Spirit, a ministry that brings righteousness. And the contrast here is vital between the ministry of the law that condemns and the ministry of the Spirit that brings righteousness. One is external, one is internal. One is imposed from the outside, one empowers from the inside. One condemns, one liberates, one kills, one gives life. Let's first consider some of the things in the Old Testament that show the necessity of the New Testament. In verse 7, it says that it brought death, though it came with glory, the Words in italic, it brought death, but it came with glory. This is something good. 
came with glory. But it's not good news to us. It's not something that's not good because it brought death. It is important to understand why God gave the law. Why did he give the Ten Commandments? It was such a high standard. It seemed unreasonable from human spe- humanly speaking. No one can keep the commandments. So why did God give them laws that nobody could keep? There are two verses in Scripture that describe what sin is. But before I read those, I want to illustrate a definition of the word sin. The word sin actually means missing the mark, and it comes from archery. So if I shoot an arrow, and somebody else shoots an arrow, and I miss by a quarter of an inch, and the other guy misses by five inches, we still missed. We missed the mark. We missed the target. Because sin, now listen to this, sin does not really measure how bad we are, but it measures how good we are not. See, on that basis, I really can't compare myself with someone else because it wouldn't make sense to say, I'm less not good than you. We're less not good than so-and-so. If, if, if we're going to the airport and we're really anxious because we're running late, which I usually am, and I, I get to the airport and we rush up to the gate and we show them our tickets and they say, I'm sorry, your flight has just, just left a minute ago. If you were here a minute. We don't congratulate ourselves and say, fantastic, we only missed it by one minute. We're in the same boat as the guy that missed it by an hour. We don't really know what sin is from God's perspective unless we know what the mark is that we missed. For the Kalanguya, initially sin was just a mistake big or little according to their own code of right and wrong in relation to the values of their community because they valued harmony. So if something, someone did something that destroyed harmony, well, that's a big sin. But they only believe they sinned against their fellow man. So we had to first help them to expand their understanding and the meaning of sin as missing the mark of the Creator's standard or purpose for creating us, thus rightly being accountable to the Creator God because He created us for a purpose and we were in rebellion against the purpose for which God created us. As in the stories of Adam and Eve and the uh, people at the Tower of Babel and the people at the time of Noah, where God punished those who were in rebellion against the purpose for which God created them. Now, I'm going to go to those verses that I mentioned that I was going to talk about that tells us what sin involves and what the mark is. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. The law represents the target, the standard that we have missed. But that doesn't tell us why the law is what it is. Why it is such a high, unobtainable standard. The next verse is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now John says, sin is breaking the law. 
falling short of the law's demands. And Paul says, sin is coming short of the glory of God. So look at this. So if that's what, if the law, if it's breaking the law, and it's falling short of the glory of God, then the law and the glory of God equal the same thing. The standard, they equal the same thing in the standard of which we have fallen short. So to answer the question, why is the law what it is, we need to first understand what the meaning of what is the glory of God. We need to answer the question, what is the glory of God? There is no Kalanguya word for glory. So to teach and translate that concept, we have to know what it is. The glory of God is essentially the moral character of God. And we find that in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did John see when he looked at Jesus? You see a halo on his head, over his head? The disciples saw in Jesus exactly what God was like. Now, if that's true of Jesus, it wasn't only intended to be true of Jesus. It was intended to be true of human beings because in the beginning God said, let us make man in our image. Not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Those things were never meant to be true of man, but the things that was intended to be true of humans created in the image of God was his moral character. God is love, and he intended us to be loving. God is just, God is kind, God is gracious, and these things are intended to be true of humans made in the image of God. Adam and Eve were intended to be a visual expression of what God was like. But when they sinned, they fell short of the glory of God and no longer showed what God was like. And so if the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing, the reason that God gave the law was to reveal his character. Because we were to be an expression of what God is like. So when the law said, thou shalt not sin, the reason was because God's, I mean, God, thou, thou shalt not steal. The reason is because God's not a thief. Thou shalt not bear false witness because God's not a liar. Thou shalt not commit adultery because God is totally faithful. Thou shalt not covet because God is not greedy. The law was given to reveal what God was like, a tangible expression of God's character, his glory. So when Paul says that the law came with glory, he is saying that the law came to reveal glory, the character of God.
This answers the question, what was glorious about the law? But it brings up another question. Why did it bring death? The law could demand what was right. It could reveal the character of God, but it could not produce it. It could expose sin, but it could not produce righteousness, thus resulting only in death. Physical, spiritual, and eternal. Okay, for the wages of sin is death. We write that in Kalanguya. They only know one thing about death. Separation of the spirit from the body. But that word death means a lot more than that. That's a place for a footnote. That's a place for a footnote to say that death means more than just because God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you'll eat, you'll surely die. Well, they didn't die. And that was the first question they'd asked. So that's a place for a footnote to indicate that death as God is referring to it here, is physical, spiritual, and eternal. When Moses came down the mountain with the tablets of stone in his hand, the first commandment says, no other gods before me. The second commandment said, no graven images. And what was the scene that Moses saw when he came down from the mountain? He was probably very enthusiastic to tell the people, God has given us a, a covenant made a covenant with us. And he says, if we keep his covenant, he'll bless us. If we break his covenant, there'll be consequences. And here the, the scene that he sees is, is a, was a shocking thing to him and angered him at the scene he saw where people were worshiping a golden calf that they had made with their hands. And what did Moses do? He smashed the tablets of stone. He probably regretted it later because he had to go back up to the mountain and get a new, a new copy. In giving the law, God didn't learn something new about humanity, but humanity learned something new about itself. Romans 3.20 Through the law, we became conscious of sin. Paul also says in Galatians 3.24 the purpose of God giving the law. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. What he means is that the law creates a sense of failure, despair, not to crush us, but as a result of realizing that we cannot do what the law demands. It drives us to the only place that we can become what God created us to be, which would be in Christ, in union with Christ. That's the old covenant. Teaching us and preparing us for what the new covenant alone can provide. Back to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? The old covenant came with glory. He says in verse 7. But in verse 18, 
it says that the new covenant imparts glory. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The glory, the character of God, he's saying, is being restored in our human experience. It says ever-increasing glory. In other words, this is progressive sanctification. This is our, our dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God and seeing the Spirit of God working through us to make us more like Christ. The glory, the capture of God is being restored in our human experience. I'm going to read three verses that speak of this new covenant. Two from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. The first one is from Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, write it in their heart, on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now he's not talking about rewriting the law or lowering its standard, but he's talking about relocating the law. From tablets of stone to written on our hearts. Now, Jeremiah didn't know what this was talking about because he never had that internal possibility that never, never entered his mind that there would be an internal empowering for him to be able to be what God created him to be. Let's go to Ezekiel. Chapter 26, verse 27. And I will put my spirit in you and this, we know this took place at Pentecost. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He's talking about internal empowering. Ezekiel didn't have any real comprehension of what this was talking about. And this is what's talking about in Colossians about the mystery. It was a mystery to them. The things that they were, trans, that, that they were prophesying. Now let's go to Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 25 and 26. I have become its servant. Speaking of the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations. Let me just pause here a minute. Moses and the prophets had no clue the significance of the things that God had revealed to them. It was a mystery. But, continuing on, but is now disclosed to the saints. It's now disclosed to us. What he was talking about. This internal empowering. But is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just seven words. The hope of what? Glory. Okay. That's not heaven. We, that doesn't mean heaven. Oh yeah, I know, I'll be okay when I get to heaven. We always talk about people uh, 
dying and going on to glory. The way it is used in Scripture is not heaven, but glory is the character of God. What we sinned and fell short of. Glory is what John said about Jesus when he saw his glory. He saw what God was like. Now what we're going to do, and we're going to conclude here in just a minute, a few minutes, or maybe a lot of minutes. We're going to put those three verses together. Here, in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. This is a promise that never was fulfilled under the old covenant. Jeremiah, I will put my laws in your mind and in your heart. Another promise fulfilled in the New Testament in Colossians where, where Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The point of this is that what were commands under the Old Covenant, listen to this, have become promises under the New Covenant by means of the indwelling Spirit of God. A lot of people say, well now, now that I'm a believer, do I still have to follow the Ten Commandments? What do you answer? Well, Jesus said, you know, Paul said that uh, Christ came to do away with the law. Well, do away with the law as the basis for man gaining righteousness before God. And but he also said that he came to establish the law. Those two passages seem in contradiction. He came to establish the law in a way that it would be internalized. And as we submit to the control of the Holy Spirit, it becomes a promise, will not lie. If you're under the control of the Spirit, you will not lie. If you're under the control of the Spirit, you'll not steal, you'll not commit adultery, you'll not covet. Because under the new covenant, all those commands have become promises as we yield to the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. I'm looking forward to teaching this to the Kalanguia widening their understanding of the scope of God's plan of redemption in which they are also included. But it'll probably take me a little longer to teach them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we just thank you for your word and, and the reality of your demonstration of glory, your character that as a result of our faith in Christ, we have Christ in us. We have the internal enabling and empowering to lead us to be everything you created us to be. Father, we just pray that you would help us to demonstrate this truth in our lives and appropriate it and, and live 
in the reality of it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Um, you know, from the moment that man fell in the garden, from that moment on has been